Welcome to Uradal University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to be talking about inflation. Inflation numbers in the United States came in scorching hot very recently relative to recent years. We're going to go back in time several decades, a few generations, to the late 1940s to explain what the difference is between consumer price increases and inflation, as well as the Federal Reserve's reaction to it, because we're going to see how the Fed reacted back then to the difference between the two, consumer price increases versus monetary inflation. We'll compare them and their reaction back then to whether or not they've learned anything. Jeff, let's go back to 1947, 1948. Oh my gosh. You come out of a Great Depression, you come out of a world war, and you go face first into a horrendous, horrendous increase in consumer prices. Here are just some comments from your article. Worst deflationary, worst conflagration, massive volatility. U.S. CPI gained 19.67% in March 1947. And it came down, it came down to all of 8%. So for two years, we had a horrible, horrible increases in consumer prices. Tell us about them, that time. Yeah, you wonder why that generation, we call them the greatest generation. I mean, they suffered through one thing after another, after another, after another. And so you can scarcely imagine the euphoric high at the end of World War II. Then you have 1945, a little bit of a demobilization recession. And then 46 seemed like everything went, was going well. And then, bam, all of a sudden, you go from deflationary forever and suddenly consumer prices are advancing at double digits at its peak, almost a 20% annual rate in, in early 1947. And you have to wonder, I mean, that by then, maybe the people were sort of, you know, traumatized enough or normalized to it that they just thought, well, whatever else would get thrown at us gets thrown at us. But I mean, it's just, it was one thing after another, after another, these wild swings in economic volatility and social and political existence. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy and nuts. Now, you're the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, and you write there, and our listeners and viewers can go to the Alhambra Investments blog, go to March 10th, 2022, and look up a title, Consumer Prices and the Historical Pains. Now, Jeff, in the article, you say that despite this lasting two years, this consumer price increase, it was transitory. Now, we're going to talk about why that is. And we're going to compare it to non-transitory increases in consumer prices, monetary inflation in a second. But first, we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. You, with the help of hindsight, maybe at the time you would have known, but with the help of hindsight, you know this was transitory. The Federal Reserve at the time did not think so. They were convinced otherwise. They thought this was going to be an inflationary inferno. Tell us about Thomas McCabe, the House Banking and Currency Committee, and uh, what what was happening in August 1948. Well, by the early parts of 1940, really the late part of 1947, Federal Reserve officials started to equate consumer prices with what they thought was an out-of-control banking system going crazy, especially in credit markets like consumer credit and things like that. So they decided we need to put the brakes on this inflation because it has all the hallmarks, at least according to them, of excessive money. The very thing that they had been afraid of since the middle 1930s, as hard as that is to believe, the Federal Reserve had been, you know, you would think during the, the Great Depression, the Fed would have been more worried about deflation than inflation, but that's not the case. As soon as the economy started to recover in 1934, and 1935, the Fed started seeing inflationary ghosts right away. 
which is why they triggered the 1937 depression within a depression, using reserve requirements as a means to lock up too much money before it became inflationary. Obviously, that wasn't the case because there was no inflation. There was only modest reflation. And as soon as they took those reserves from banks, banks rebuilt their reserves. And the only way they did that was by shrinking the money supply yet again, leaving 1937 and 38 as one of the worst isolated depressions in history. But the fact that it came along during the Great Depression just meant it was another depression within a depression. So the Fed has always had this inflation bias, including the 1930s, and they never stopped. They never gave up on that. So along in 1946 and 47, consumer prices start to accelerate. They say, aha, here it is. Here is that inflation we've been warning you about for a decade. It's finally here. We need to do something about it. Yes, we screwed up in 1937 and caused a massive crisis. We promise we won't do it again. So you can see why. Thomas McGabe, who was uh, chairman at the time, had to go to Congress and essentially beg for authorization to use reserve requirements because Congress wasn't too happy. Politicians and the government were not too happy with the 1937 experience and said, you know, maybe you people just see inflationary ghosts all the time and maybe you shouldn't have this authority because you're like a kid with a box of matches with it. Here's the quote to the House Banking and Currency Committee in August 1948 from Mr. McCabe. Quote, we are convinced that, so long as the present situation lasts, it is important to restrict further credit expansion and to promote a psychology of restraint on the part of both borrowers and lenders. In the middle of a depression, at the tail end of a depression, you want to restrict money and credit. God. You know what's amazing though, Emil, and I think I pointed out in the article, is that even then, look at how important psychology is to monetary policymakers. They're mm -hmm. saying it's important to shut down this inflationary psychology. At least by then, they, they linked it. At least back then, they linked it with actual monetary and credit policy. But still, there's a psychology angle to monetary policy, at least in, in the way policymakers understand the situation. So it was important in August of 1948 for Thomas McCabe to go up to Congress and say, we need these reserve requirement powers, discretionary authority to raise reserve requirements on banks before this credit business really triggers this uncontrolled inflationary scenario. Now to Mr. McCabe's benefit though, we have to admit that by January, 1949, the CPI rate was back under 2%, Jeff Snyder, because they used those powers and they strangled the economy and money creation immediately. Isn't that what happened? That is actually the modern version. You know, I wrote a different article about the 1947-48 experience contrasting more recent scholarship about the 47-48 recession or the 47-48 inflation with the 48 and 49 recession and how it's looked at in modern times versus how it was looked at contemporarily. In modern times, it's, it's, you can hear the post-Volcker language, the post-Volcker assumptions where, oh, the Fed provoked the 48-49 recession. Whereas you go back in time and read what they were saying back then, the Fed did something. Was the Fed even involved? Nobody even nobody equated the Fed with anything of this 48 and 49 recession because they really didn't do anything. They barely started using it. Thomas McKay went to Congress in August of 48 and said, give us this authority, this discretionary power over reserve requirements. And Congress said, OK, go ahead. And then the Fed started making minor adjustments to it. And as soon as they did, or even before the fact that even before they started making adjustments, inflation started to fall off. 
So August of 1948, the CPI was rising at almost 9% rate. By July, it was down to 6. And by September, October, and as you said, January 1949, it was down to 2. And the reason was because a recession had already begun by the time Thomas McKay was begging Congress for this discretionary authority. So the Fed just happened to believe that inflation was out of control. At the same moment, inflation was being brought under control by a recession and a really nasty one, too. Jeff, there's a great graph in here. It's a little bit busy. It's got the Federal Reserve Bank holdings of U.S. government securities. And it seems so familiar to our present day where all of a sudden these holdings go from essentially nothing and stable to a unbelievable, previously unimaginable increase by the Federal Reserve, the holdings, right? So they're creating, they're making some sort of action, right? They're doing something. But then you've got these three lines coming here through this graph, Jeff, and they seem totally unrelated to the activity that's being done by the Federal Reserve. Now, people who believe in the Federal Reserve centrality will say, aha, well, the long-term rates were capped. That's why we didn't see some sort of increase, right? But then you've got these corporate bonds, AAA and BAA, that seem to ignore, they were not capped. Were they capped, Jeff? No. They seem to be ignoring what the Federal Reserve was doing. Tell us what you would expect to see if the Federal Reserve was central to money creation and then what we actually observe in this graph. Well, remember back then, or if you're not, not familiar with, but going back into World War II, the Federal Reserve, again, being sidelined after screwing up one time after another after another during the Great Depression, the Federal Reserve was essentially tasked with being Treasury's bond seller agency. And so their primary job was just to make sure that during World War II, the federal government could sell as much debt as it needed to finance the war. And so that's kind of what the Fed's job was. And the way that worked, mechanically speaking, was that the Feds basically said, we're not going to allow bond yields to go above a certain rate. So the government can borrow cheap because it needs to fight the war. And so the Fed offered to buy bonds that would yield any greater than that certain cap. There was a hard cap on T-bill rates, and then there was sort of an implicit cap on long-term bond yields. But the fact of the matter was, during the entirety of World War II and in the immediate years afterwards, the Fed didn't have to buy a single bond because the market was more than happy to bid up and buy everything the government offered because Great Depression, World War II, not exactly the best economic climates to be taking on monetary and debt risks. So the system, the entire banking system, the entire financial system domestically was more than happy to absorb any and all issuance by the federal government. Sounds familiar. And so the Fed didn't have to do anything. But we get to these CPI spikes, the supply shock in 47. Suddenly the Fed's, you know, oh, this is inflation. Everybody's going to start selling their safe liquid assets because this is inflation. And so the Fed said, we're going to start buying bonds to enforce these uh, yield caps. And of course, the bond yields did rise a little bit. They went from low twos to around middle twos and got near the implicit cap by the uh, end of 1947 into 48. But as you pointed out, Emil, you know, other interest rates, whether it be corporate bonds or municipal bonds or whatever else it was, there was no inflation panic. The inflation panic was strictly with the Federal Reserve. And again, that manifested in Thomas McKay going up to Congress and saying, we need reserve requirement authority or this inflation stuff is going to get out of control. When the bond market told them, you're buying all these bonds, you don't need to. We're not exactly believing this is inflationary circumstance. 
And so we're perfectly happy to own safe and liquid instruments, even though the CPI is double digits for over two years. Now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out a very nice, fascinating, interesting report in April of 2014, and it was titled 100 Years of Price Change, the Consumer Price Index and the American Inflation Experience. And of course, you can't go through 100 years and not talk about what was happening in the 1940s. And here is a quote that they give us. Very interesting quote. In retrospect, the early 1950s mark a turning point in the American inflation experience. The decades leading up to the Korean War era featured alternating periods of sharp inflation and genuine deflation, with the former generating active efforts to control prices and the latter generating fears of recession and, sometimes, active efforts to raise prices. Although severe inflation and even price controls would return, the post-Korean War era would look different from the 1941-51 to period with less volatility and a near absence of deflation. Interesting. Look at what they're saying here. It's exactly that, you know, we had these very intense, very intense, you know, Again, in 47, the CPI was up to 20%. Very intense bursts of consumer price increases and acceleration, but they never lasted. They were always intense, but short, intense, but temporary, intense, but transitory. And so we, we alternated, in the, at least in the World War II and post-war, immediate post-war aftermath, it was sharp consumer price acceleration, then genuine deflation, recession, then maybe another one. And so there were three major spikes that had nothing to do with money. It was all about supply shocks. Each one very sharp, very intense, but each one also temporary. And at the end of each one, as the BLS pointed out almost you know, 80 some odd years later, that it wasn't consistent inflation. There usually, it usually ended with genuine deflation. And you know, as they said, active efforts to get prices to go back up again. So something was very different in the way that consumer prices behaved structurally up until around the middle 1950s. Then from the middle 1950s forward, something was very different. Instead of being short, sharp burst of intense consumer price acceleration, it was more of a slow, relentless, unrelenting building of consumer prices more and more and more and more. Steady, smooth, rising, never being, never stopping. And of course, eventually that became the great inflation. And it's interesting, at least to me, how during that immediate post-war, the pre-1955 period where you had these sharp bursts of consumer prices that weren't inflation, yet the Federal Reserve every single time was convinced that it was inflation, only to be shocked into these recessionary consequences. And then we get into the 1960s when it was inflation, it turned into the great inflation. Where the hell was the Fed? Suddenly they were more concerned about other things than actual monetary growth and inflation. That is the history of the Federal Reserve. When you think, when they think it's one thing, it always turns out to be another thing. So they were thinking inflation during the Great, Great Depression when it was nothing but deflation. They were thinking inflation during the immediate aftermath of World War II when it was nothing more than supply shocks. And then when it turned out to actually be inflation, they were like, but we can't define money, so we don't really know. That is the Federal Reserve. And it's only this modern creation after Volcker were thought to believe that, oh, now all of a sudden there are these wise monetary stewards that can plan complex economic societies and do so at the push of a button. That's just not their history and it's not what they actually do. Which is, of course, why we're doing this show 
We're going to be talking about what we're experiencing right now, what the Fed believes is happening and what will probably likely happen. But let's go back in time, Jeff. I noticed that in the mid-1950s, it would sort of change. And I would give you three guesses, with the first two not counting, Jeff, as to what it was that changed and created this big difference between these two eras. Now, okay, spoiler alert, it was the creation of this network of banks creating money out of thin air, the euro dollar. Okay, a decade later, you asked, where was the Fed earlier? Well, a decade later, they were at Basel, probably at the BIS at a very nice conference, and the BIS announced that they have noticed this euro dollar thing about nine years later, but they noticed it. And I'm going to contrast what the official sources are saying about this new, very interesting creation of money versus what the private markets are saying, okay? So, and how much importance they place on this new thing, the euro dollar. Quote from the BIS, at the same time, certain criticisms have been made of the market, the euro dollar, in particular, that it hampers efforts to control inflation. So far as inflation is concerned, borrowing in the euro market by a country may enable the private sector to circumvent a domestic credit squeeze or may allow the authorities to delay corrective action against an external deficit. I'll let you jump in after I read this one, Jeff. While such arguments have their element of truth, this may be easily exaggerated. Moreover, arguments about the control of inflation and the possibility of bad debts would, for the most part, apply not to euro currency lending as such, but to international credit in general. It sounds like Mr. Bill Dudley in 2007. <laughs> nah, the euro dollar market, don't take it seriously. All right. What are they saying? The BIS 1964, the official. Well, let's go, okay, the BLS said, you know, 80 some odd years BIS. later, said, look, something changed with as far as the behavior of inflation in the United States, something big. We all know inflation is money. Milton Friedman, inflation is always never a monetary phenomenon. So let's equate all of these things. Let's put all of these dots together because they belong together, right? Money is inflation. Inflation is money. So if something changed in the behavior of consumer prices, something must have changed in the, in the way a monetary system works or how it evolves or whatever else. And so in 1964, the BIS comes along and says, yeah, we've been hearing noises about this euro dollar thingy. Uh, let's take a look at it. And so, you know what they said? They said, man, this euro dollar thingy has tremendous potential to grow outside the boundaries of every uh, regulatory regime and government. Maybe that's an issue. Oh, no, it's not. It can't be because, you know, why would it? Because it's just simply, you know, global finance, that can't be as important as national monetary policies and national economies and national central banks. So remember, this was written in 1964. The great inflation would begin in 1965. <laughs> so it's, these people have a preternatural sense of being wrong about money and inflation every friggin' time in every kind of circumstance. So what they were basically saying is this euro dollar thing has massive monetary potential, but oh, never mind, it's not a big deal. That was the official public official view, okay? Now, here's what the private actors were saying from Paul Einzig in his book. Who was Paul Einzig? I guess he was the uh, Isabella Kaminska of the day, right? Okay, so, and he wrote foreign dollar loans in Europe in 1965. Ladies and gentlemen, what a page turner, right? Stephen King has got nothing on this. What a thriller. You got to read it, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, the euro dollar market was for years hidden from economists and other readers of the financial press by a remarkable conspiracy of silence. 
I stumbled on its existence by sheer accident in October 1959, and when I embarked on an inquiry about it in London banking circles, several bankers emphatically asked me not to write about the new practice. What a difference, right, Jeff? Officials are saying, nah, it's no big deal. And the people who are doing it saying, shh, don't say anything. We're making so much money So who do right we now. turn to, right, Emil? Wow. That's really what we're talking about. Where do we look for answers on all this money inflation business? And, and the answer is bond yields, euro dollar futures, the market. Let's look at the market signals because as the BIS in its 34th annual report said, don't worry about this euro dollar stuff, years before then, long-term bond yields had started to turn higher slowly but steadily saying, okay, you guys may not be, you might be very sanguine about the inflationary characteristics of this uncontrollable monetary regime. We're getting a little bit worried about it. And so bond yields started to creep up throughout the, you know, 1963, 1964, 1965 in anticipation of what would actually happen in the CPI. So bond yields were always a step, at least a year ahead of what happened in consumer prices, just as they were back in the pre-euro dollar regime when they were supply shocks. Bingo. The bond yields said, yes, yes, the CPI is 20%, but you know, more likely than not, this is going to end in demand destruction, recession, and deflation. So we're not going to chase that, that temporary transitory 20%, even if it goes double digits for two years. We know how this ends. And it doesn't end in something like 1970s. It ends in something like more like a mini burst of the 1930s where you have a nasty recession and outright price decline. So bond yields, historically speaking, have aligned very closely with inflation because it is money. It is the monetary system. Banks are the euro dollar. Banks before the euro dollar were domestic money too. So if the banking system is saying we want to own safe and liquid instruments, regardless of what the current CPI says, that is a signal you should probably listen to. And one you should probably not listen to is those economists at the Federal Reserve and even the bankers at the Federal Reserve, because they always tend to see inflation where it doesn't exist, or they tend to not see deflationary risks where they do exist. It's fascinating how in the 1940s, they perceived it correctly. In the 1950s, they started to change their tune. 1960s started to change their tune. The bond markets were perceiving it correctly. And they do to this day. And we're going to be talking about what inflation rates, consumer price increases are coming in at right now, Jeff. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about, well, what are the markets thinking? Are they reacting as if 1940s transitory supply demand imbalances? Or are they saying, yeah, this is the 1960s, 70s great monetary expansion. So we'll find out in a moment, Jeff. Uh, do you want to talk about what the results were in the U.S.? They came out on the, the 10th of March, very high. Do we really need to? I think by now everybody's familiar with the fact that the headline CPI was just okay. a touch under 8%. That's the highest in almost 40 years. I mean, that those I mean, you can get that from anywhere in the mainstream media because those, those numbers have been blared across the internet repeatedly. And really, there's nothing we're going to say that changes anybody's mind anyway, because whether it's transitory consumer price supply shock or actual inflation, for most people, does it really matter? Because they're experiencing the consumer price pain anyway. And I think the only thing that we really need to point out is in terms of potential for demand destruction is where consumer prices have shifted. It's now basically gasoline, food, and rent. So all the basics of living, all the basics of living in a modern world, the costs of those are going up. So for us to, you know, have a discussion about why that is. For most people, their sense of all of this is, that, I don't care if it's inflation or not inflation, it's 
I'm paying for it every day. And so to me, this is an academic discussion that's not really that important. Let's go to Kevin Feldman. He's one of our Twitterati, and he has a question about this time period. And maybe you can change his mind. His name on Twitter, at Kevin Feldman. Seems like you're rewriting history of the 1970s. This is what he's saying to you, Jeff. I've never studied an analysis of that period that didn't include supply shocks as part of accelerating inflation. The idea that high oil now contributes to demand destruction, but not inflation cycle? Where does that come from? It comes from from the 1970s. And the thing is, as we talked about before, we're talking about specifically, this this topic came up with our discussion about Mohammed El-Aryan recently, saying the great inflation got was he tied it together with the 1973 oil price embargo. And as we pointed out back then, the great inflation was already seven or eight years old by the time OPEC ever did anything. So oil prices and supply shocks really were not part of the early days of the great inflation. And as I said back then, August of 1971, President Nixon came out with wage and price controls. That was 1971, several years before the oil supply shock. But he's right in pointing out the oil, I mean, for most of the public and most of the people that lived through that period, they remember mostly, you know, the gasoline lines, the embargo, oil prices. That was seared into their consciousness. So it's understandable why people would equate the two. And I'm not saying the two didn't go together. What I'm saying is that Mohammed El-Rayorian's analysis of where the great inflation came from or why it was so great I think he missed the boat and and missed the the early part of it. But even then, the OPEC oil embargo, which started in April of 1973, didn't actually contribute to inflation. It actually did create demand destruction because within months, the United States economy was in a recession. And we had monetary inflation. I hate that term, but still monetary inflation ongoing during that oil supply shock, which contributed to demand destruction and recession. In the 74, 75, it lasted all the way through 1974 into 75, was one of the worst up until the 1980s. So yes, we had inflation long before oil prices. Then we did have oil prices that made it that much worse that then triggered an actual recession within an inflationary environment. So yeah, all of these things happened. And I don't think we're rewriting uh, inflation history of the 70s at all. I think what we're actually doing is sorting out these two different processes and how they combine together to make the 70s one of the worst periods, economically speaking, in history. Excellent, Jeff. I love that. Great answer. All right, let's move on to our next episode. 